Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio, back with a good friend of Vox Day, a multiple-time Hugo Award nominee. He writes epic fantasy as well as nonfiction, including Social Justice Warriors Always Lie, Taking Down the Thought Police, and Conservative: How Conservatives Betrayed America. We'll put the links to those excellent books below. He is also a professional game designer and maintains a pair of popular blogs, Vox Populi and Alpha Game, 3.1 million page views per month, and the lead designer of the next generation Wikipedia replacement, Info Galactic. You want to give us a flash of that there t-shirt there, my friend? Sure. It's uh, our, our latest. A little higher, a little higher. We couldn't see the text at the bottom. Oh, yes. Yeah, All right. Uh, show me some nip. All right. <laughs> Very nice. And he also runs Castellia House Publishing, which just released Mike Cernovich's new book, MAGA Mindset, which I did the audio book for. Um, okay, I wish I, I was hoping to do that in one breath, but clearly your bio was outlasting my middle-aged lung capacity. Uh, how are you doing, Vox? I'm doing great, and it's amusing me how we have actually gotten more incestuous than the new atheists have <laughs> That's <laughs> right. Mike, Mike writes the book, I edit it, you do the audio, and next thing we know, you know, Milo is going to be doing the performance art version of it on stage somewhere. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, it, it basically, it's what it is, is it's sort of a very loose commune. I, that's sort of how I view it. You know, it's like we're all in the same walls, but we're in different continents. And that's how it seems to work. And uh, no, it's nice. You know, when you when you find people you like, uh, it's just important to stick with them and support them as, as best you can. So I'm thrilled that you're doing the book. Uh, I think the audiobook is going to do well. And um, uh, it's, a, it's a good book for people to read. I, I really liked it. I mean, I've done an audiobook or two before, but not one where I've agreed with so much of the content. So <laughs> that's really, uh, really nice. I, I admire your ability to do that. I tried to do my own SJWs, always lie. I think I made it past the introduction and thought, I just can't do this. Now, what was so, it for you that made it uh, a challenge? I don't actually know. I, I just, uh, I think I find it difficult to um, focus and get the pronunciations correct. Uh, plus, I have a little bit of a sibilant S, which just bothers the smack out of me. So, um <laughs> You know, it's just one of those things where I got through about, you know, the introduction halfway through, you know, through the first chapter and just thought, screw it. Other people can do this better. I'll I'll stick to the writing. Right, right, right. So we're going to talk a little bit about Donald Trump. Now, we've done some of this topic before, but the sort of angle that, that we're going to take, which I think is really interesting and, and fairly innovative, is this RK selection approach to understanding the divide between the new alt-right and the old uniparty. So I wonder if you could give people a brief intro to the RK selection paradigm or, or continuum for those who shockingly have not uh, studied this in depth before. Well, the best place to get uh, a solid grasp of it is a book by Anonymous Conservative, which is devoted to the subject. It's quite good. Um, and it's based on a theory of evolution that was developed by biologist E.O. Wilson, if I recall correctly, um, some time ago. And it's, you know, it's, it's somewhat outdated from a biological science point of view, but uh, it is still extremely useful for understanding human behavior from both a political point of view as well as from a personal point of view. And what RK stands for is uh, two different reproductive strategies. The, the small r uh, uh, and the large k. The, the small r represents um, the uh, 
low investment reproductive strategy, which basically means uh, you have lots and lots of kids and you don't worry about the fact that half of them are going to get eaten by predators or, or you know, uh, kill themselves. Uh, fish, for example, would tend to follow the, the R reproduction strategy. Um, the advantages of that strategy are that uh, it's very low investment by the parents. Uh, it, it basically, uh, you could call it spray and pray <laughs> if you wanted. Um, but uh, the, it has a lot of, of long-term implications, not only for the species, but also for the uh, behavioral patterns that the individuals of that species will take. Um, the, the contrary uh, K selection strategy um, is a, a high investment, uh, more conservative approach where uh, the parents tend to uh, have a much smaller number of offspring to invest considerably more time and energy in them. Um, and they tend to have you know, much fewer offspring. The offspring tend to mature much later. And again, that also has a tremendous impact on the outcomes. And some of those outcomes are visible in the different human behaviors, both in terms of uh, individuals and as well as in terms of various divergent human groups. Right. And the Ks tend to be more complex organisms, and they tend to be more on the predator than on the prey side. And I think one of the challenges for the Rs is if you're in an environment where your survival is unpredictable and there's not much you can do about it, then you're going to be focused more on just the spray and prey. I mean, if the the hawk or the eagle comes swooping down to pick up the rabbit, well, the rabbit can run, but, you know, there's not a whole lot it can do to fight back. So it might as well just have as many babies as possible, knowing that some of them are going to not survive to adulthood. Some of them are going to be eaten by foxes or owls or, or eagles or whatever. So you might just have a whole bunch of them. There's not much strategy you can teach your kids other than run, you know, and you don't even have to teach that. That's a fight-or-flight response. But for wolves or, or other pack animals in particular – the hunting strategies can become quite complex and there's a lot of play that's necessary and the food supply is limited. Like rabbits are never limited by food supply, or at least almost never, because they're never really going to run out of grass or things to chew on. But wolves may run out of rabbits. And so you want to have a smaller number of offspring, but invest a lot in teaching them how to work together, how to hunt, how to encircle. Uh, and there's going to be a strong pecking order. There's going to be a hierarchy. And there's going to be an in-group preference that's really strong. Uh, I actually I read about this, and then I saw it in a documentary how, you know, there was, there was a, um, a fox chasing a rabbit. And it was running through this field full of rabbits. And the other rabbits were like, eh. You know, they didn't even look up from their eating, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, another one bites the dust. What do we care? Right. Uh, whereas, right. of course, wolves are fierce to protect their cubs and so on. And uh, I think that uh, adaptation strategy is more for complex, more developed organisms that tend to be on the bulkier predatory side. Well, yeah, the examples that you choose there are the, are the two that are commonly given. And, and they really do help understand the, the, the key differences between the two. You know, the, the rabbits tend to be the, the symbol of the, the R reproductive st uh, strategy. Wolves tend to be the symbol of the, the K uh, reproductive strategy. Um, I think when you uh, take the analogy and, and apply it to human behavior, what you see is that the R strategy uh, is, is definitely favored by the people with short-term prefer short-time preferences, whereas the K strategy 
is is those that is more pursued by uh, by the K preferences, and so you know this has tremendous implications, not just for personal lives but also for for societies. You know, a a R selected individual is going to be much more fatalistic. He's going to feel that he doesn't have any control over his environment. He doesn't have any control over his life. He doesn't have much control over his destiny. I mean, even if even if we, we, we stop at that point, you can already start to see what sort of political ideologies are likely to appeal to that sort of individual. The K-selected individual, on the other hand, is, is going to be um, taught because, because the parental investment is going to be stronger, is going to be taught um, to have longer time preferences, is going to be taught to delay gratification, is going to be encouraged to build for the future, to think about the next generation, and, and that sort of thing. And so it, it's very easy to see how the RK paradigm is pretty easily applied to the conventional liberal conservative paradigm in its proper sense, not in the in the uniparty sense that that we now know it to be. Yeah, the, and it sort of struck me that that the R organisms have a much higher sex drive and much less capacity to, to control sexual impulses. And of course, one of the great challenges of civilization, uh, you know, two forces I think need to be tamed for human civilization to flourish. Uh, one is is male aggression, and the second is female vanity. But that's perhaps a topic for another time. But the the control of the sexual impulse, right? So the idea that you uh, have uh, sex within the confines of a pair-bonded, per-permanent marital situation. That's a way of sort of taking the sex drive and, and channeling it into that which is productive and helpful for men, women, for children. It's the best environment for children to grow up in and so on. And the R-selected uh, people, the groups, have extremely, extremely high sex drives, and they don't really benefit that much from political or, or particularly economic freedom because they don't have much capacity to defer gratification. So they choose sex over liberty. And if you sort of look at the 1960s, that helps, I think, put, at least for me, some of that in perspective, that in the 1960s, there was the rise of socialism and, you know, the sexual revolution, which was, you know, the pill right. and, and all of that. So I think if you have a very high sex drive and you don't have much capacity to defer gratification, you'd rather have sex in the here and now than political freedom in the future, which is why I think sexual liberation and socialism or government control tends to be, um, I think, coincidental in a lot of societies. Well, what's ironic is that historically, socialist governments and communist governments have been tremendously puritanical. Um, and so what, what's obvious is that the even the those who most benefit from the politics of the R-selected understand that if they want to have a functional society, they have to crack down on it and limit it in some way. And, and that's, I think, one of the big ironies that we're seeing in the transformation or, or really the, the, the way that um, the United States and Russia are beginning to see a juxtaposition. Mm. Because uh, even though the United States had the economic advantages of freedom and liberty and and the technological advancement that tends to go along with it, we also saw the transformation from a K-selected to an R-selected population, you know, even without immigration. Just within the, the core population, um, 
there was a, a gradual shift from K-selected to R-selected. At the same time, despite the fact that uh, you had communism throughout the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, because they were clamping down so hard on on the citizenry and that sort of thing, because they, they, they early on they experimented with uh, institutionalized R selection, and uh, you know that as well as I do, and it was a complete failure. So much so that they they completely abandoned it and ended up becoming quite puritanical. And so, I suspect that part of why we're seeing the rise of of Russia as a relatively conservative power in global politics could partly be because of the the way that Russia now has a more case-selected population. Eastern Europe has a much more case-selected population. Um, you know, I was in Serbia uh, doing some work with a game company there. And uh, I mean, I have to tell you, I, I've seldom encountered uh, you know, such a group of hard asses in my life. And, what do you mean? Were, I mean, everyone had, uh, because of the, you know, the Balkan War and all that sort of thing, everybody had had military training. Um, they all, and, and keep in mind, this is a game development company. You know, you're, you're used to running into a few, more than a few, uh, you know, spaghetti-armed dorks and, and that sort of thing in, in that environment, which is fine. You know, they, they're, you're dealing with people whose lives are mostly intellectual. Well, these guys were just as smart, just as capable intellectually, but they all looked like they moonlighted as Eastern European bodyguards, you, you know. And uh, I mean, it was it, it was kind of crazy, um, you know. And also, I think because there was a a bit of a crime issue um, and so forth, you know, everywhere you went, there was always you know three or four burly bodyguards, you know, with anyone who had uh, who had a nice car. <laughs> So, but it was just, it was interesting to see what, uh, you know, what years of, of that sort of hardship, because hardship is what brings about case election. You know, the, the reason that people, um, that people adopt these conservative, more, uh, longer term perspectives is because they need to do it if they're going to stay alive. You know, it's, it's the old ant and the grasshopper. Uh, you, you can't live like a grasshopper and expect to make it through the winter. You have to plan ahead. You have to think about tomorrow and think about next year and think about the six months where you're not going to be easily finding uh, anything to eat. Whereas, you know, if you're in the tropics and that sort of thing and the food is literally falling off the trees everywhere around you, you don't have to plan ahead. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to, to think ahead. And so I think that, um, Regardless of whether, you know, RK theory is, um, you know, something that the, the hardcore biologists are using these days, uh, I still think it's a very useful uh, paradigm to make some sense of what people's behavior is going to be, but also what people's politics are going to be. And it is, it's a very useful predictive model to, uh, to see how various societies are going to develop. That's why I think we can look at the way that China is on the rise, the way that Russia is on the rise, and the way that the U.S. appears to be increasingly on the decline. Right. And I think it's hard to understand society, these politics, without looking at two competing gene sets as if they're 
subspecies, like animals competing for the same resources, right? So it's sort of a fairly common tenet of biology that two subspecies never inhabit the same area for very long. Like if the black squirrels move in, either the red squirrels push them out or the red squirrels get pushed out because they're both competing for the same resources, the same nests and so on. And so if we look at sort of R versus K as two gene sets at war with each other, it certainly helps explain some of the left-right paradigms uh, and, and how deeply rooted in biology they tend to be. But I think another interesting way of looking at it, Vox, is to say, if I were the R selection gene set, what would I want to do? What, how would I want to change my environment to stimulate my spread? Well, we know that the R selected uh, tends to spread when resources are plentiful. So what I would want to do if I was the R-selected gene set is I'd want to vote for a welfare state because a welfare state stimulates R-selected behavior because it creates an environment where it's the tropics, so to speak, right? There's there's resources pouring out of the government. You fill out a form, you get your money, you're you're guaranteed of of free health care, you're guaranteed housing, and you're guaranteed education for your kids and all that. And so I think if we look at voting patterns as not just people's immediate self-interest, but almost like <clears throat> it's the genes reaching through their fingers to pull or, or to tick the, the, the box that is going to create an environment that further allows for the spread of that uh, gene set. And meanwhile, of course, all the case-selected people are on the other side saying, we're getting kind of stressed here because, boy, we're accumulating a lot of debt. Now, the R's don't really care about that because there's a short-term time preference. It appears to be a state of near-infinite abundance. So they're like krill in a plankton-rich sea, you know, I mean, just no, no limitation. And uh, on the K side, though, there is this sense of, well, we're eating our seed crop. I don't know if we're going to be able to make it through the winter. We got to be careful. And these two perspectives don't really seem to find any way to mediate because the R's reproduce until they overwhelm and destroy the economic and social capital of the society. And then there's a period of intense hardship, the dark ages and that kind of stuff. And then the K's start rebuilding the society. The society becomes wealthy and the R's are like, woohoo, free stuff. And man, it would be nice to find some way to interrupt this grim cycle. Right, but what's, what's interesting about that is simply by applying our K theory, you're able to build a theory that underlies the cyclical pattern that we see in history. And so... You know, that that illustrates the power of the paradigm because simply by correctly applying it and applying its logical conclusions, you suddenly end up with a model that looks very much like the model that we know, the, you know, the, the historical model that we're all familiar with. And so, um, you know, the, the question is, how do we break that? Well, it's not up to us to break that now because we're not at that point in the cycle. The point in the cycle that we're at is the entering the dark ages. And so our job right now is to figure out how to uh, ally with other K-selected types and think ahead and plan for the future and make sure that as many uh, of us uh, and and our children survive. And, And that's really, I think, what we need to be focused on. Now, it wouldn't be a bad idea to make sure that we have a few books out there outlining this so that hopefully in a few hundred years when we're we're on the upside of the cycle, we can try to remind some people that maybe we want to make sure that that the the R-selected types don't take over again. And I mean, I know a lot of people have some significant hostility towards the R-selected types, but 
I, I, I like them as a whole, right? I mean, insofar as they have a sort of loose-limbed creativity, a sort of break the rules, a challenge the rules things. You know, I think pure K-selected societies to me, like if you look at sort of China's 6,000 years relative to the West kind of stagnation, the, the, the K-selected societies can, well, well, those are the rules and, and, and we can't question the rules. And I like the, the sort of tsunami of, K, of R-ness that comes crashing into the K-societies and mixes it up. I think the problem is, without the free market like if if you get politics overwhelming the free market things change because in a free market the case will tend to accumulate more resources you know just work harder think further ahead save and and don't squander and not hedonistic in general and so on so case will tend to accumulate more resources and in a free market more resources means you can have and sustain more children so the case will be the bulk of of society and give it that middle class stability that you really desperately need in a society. And the R's will be kind of be chipping away at the edges and and uh, the sort of creative destruction of questioning rules and so on. But they won't get enough resources because they're kind of chaotic and 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 uh, don't save and kind of hedonistic. They won't get enough resources to overwhelm through breeding. But if you you bring the welfare state in, what happens is that tilts the 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 whole resource allocation, so to speak, in society gets tilted away from the Ks and towards the Rs. And that, to me, is really feeding the Petri dish. And I think that turns them from a sort of, um, I don't know, like a, a bug that makes your, your, your immune system stronger to like a cancer. <laughs> it just spreads and grows without respite. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think that a lot of the – it's not just the um, – welfare state but it's also the introduction of the pill which you know so you've now got a you know for the first time in human history you've got the possibility or you've got our selected behavior um without one of the primary consequences Mm -hmm. the primary limiting consequences of it and so uh you know that's been tremendously uh destabilizing to western society in general um, the U.S. in particular. Um, and then, of course, as our selected behavior becomes the norm, then they start changing the rules. You know, the, 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 case, the K-types want to obey the rules, fine. But then when the R-types start changing the rules, and you start seeing things like, um, you know, uh, uh, what's it called? Um, you know, no-fault divorce. Mm. And, uh, and more and more... Uh, removals of consequences to actions. Your alimony and child support, I think, as well. I mean, to me, if, you, if you're if you in a marriage, it's like being a job. If you get fired, you don't get to continue to keep a paycheck. But uh, the way it right. works with alimony is you do, particularly in California. Right. And so, uh, you know, so we're, what we're seeing is basically a, a quadruple whammy of our selected reinforcement. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, it, 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 there, there's... The thing that's a little bit dispiriting, I think, at times, when you look at the West, is that every single eucivic uh, factor is either suppressed or in decline. And every I'm sorry, eucivic? Dis- I mean, oh. <laughs> if, you, if you're going to break out in fluent Serbian, please give me some warning. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, um, it, it means that which is beneficial to uh, civic society. It's the opposite of dis-civic. Um, and so um, what, I was, what I was leading up to is that uh, at the same time that we're seeing the eucivic elements suppressed, 
we're seeing the dissivic elements enshrined not only in societal custom but in law mm. and and you know that just you know it doesn't just bake the decline into the cake it it, it etches it into the granite you know carves it into stone and um and and i think that that's why we're seeing a lot of these recent events i, I mean you know to me i find it shocking that after 150 years or more 165 years whatever it is of the united states uh extending its power into asia and the pacific through the philippines you know the u.s just threw it away you know uh, with president duterte coming right out and openly saying yeah you know we're we're going to align with china now i mean that's a that is a, a a major shift of hemispheric level proportions and yet you know the media is much more interested in in talking about whether you know trump hit on some you know, playboy model 10 years ago i mean it, it's it, but that shows again going back to the the our selected mentality i mean that that's pure our selection right there you know we don't care about you know this major military establishment and and our our one uh, one of our two um chief areas to project force into the pacific um we're fine with that just but you know even though we fought to keep it from japan we're fine with it just you know going over to china <laughs> i mean it's just it's mind-boggling that the, the the triviality of the our selected mind is is not just difficult for the K selected mind to understand. It's it's somewhat soul shattering. You know? I think yeah, I think that's a perfect way to put it. I just did a I just finished a video. I won't go over it again, but very briefly, it was you know this is Canyon and and people who are K selected are looking at like the Hillary Clinton campaign and saying. She's been accused of so many crimes. There's so much corruption floating around. There's so many god-awful mistakes and bad judgments. And, you know, she helped lay waste to the Middle East, which is now laying waste to Europe. I mean, how can this conceivably be any kind of presidential candidate? Because we have rules, and the rules have been wildly broken. So how is it possible? But the R-selected people are like, she's the gateway to free stuff. What do we care about the rules, right? And they openly state that. That's in Saul Alinsky's Rule for Radicals. You know, hold them to their standards. We'll always win because we have got no standards, so they can't hold us to anything. Well, right. And that, that actually kind of ties into what you were talking about, the connection to the alt-right. Like, where does RK theory relate to the alt-right? Well, what the alt-right represents, in my perspective, is that... It is the K-selected uh, abandoning the rules that limited them. And, you know, a lot of people are shocked. A lot of conservatives are shocked by the way that I and Mike Chernovich and, to a certain extent, Milo uh, behave towards the left. You know, we're... <laughs> We don't. I say, not not Queensbury rules in the boxing ring. What's going on? You're hitting below the belt. You're opening up trap doors. You're releasing condors and jaguars. I I don't find this in any of my rule books. (laughs) Shocking. I mean, I mean, it's always kind of funny to me how you know these these people say um, you know it's you're you're so mean. You're, You're you're not you're not being 
not being very polite. And, you know, to which my response is, you know, which part of Supreme Dark Lord do you not fucking understand? Well, and, and, yeah. and how's that been working for us so far, being really polite and following all the rules? Uh, how, how's that been working out? You know, when you're losing everything, you got nothing left to lose, and you might as well try the tactics of your enemy. Oh, absolutely. But, but not only try the tactics, I mean, utilize them better mm. and more, more relentlessly and more ruthlessly than they know how to do because, you know, they're, they're short-term oriented. I mean, one, one of the interesting things for me in dealing with the SJWs in the science fiction world is the fact that they are permanently surprised. I, I mean, it, it's kind of funny. They, 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 they will attack you. And then they're genuinely surprised when you punch them back in the face, you know, and they're even more surprised when a month, six months, a year later, you hit them again, even harder. And they literally have no idea why you hit them. They're like, what was that for? And you're like, you were my enemy a year ago. You're still my enemy today. I'm still coming after you. And of course, you know, they're like the rabbit kind of going, well, yeah, there was a fox in the meadow a year ago, but I mean, you know, it came back. Right. <laughs> I think yeah, that's they, a... They have, no, go ahead, they, go ahead. They don't, just, they, they don't just have short-term preferences. They've got short memories. And, and so uh, they, they always think that every engagement is the final battle. And so the fact that that's also why... Um, I, I, you've probably noticed this. When you see a leftist or an SJW attempt to write a rebuttal of a right-wing piece, um, they will always f describe it as so-and-so destroyed so-and-so. Well, no, he didn't destroy him. He called him a few names. Maybe it hurt his feelings. Maybe it didn't. But he's still going to be around tomorrow to write another article. But, but, they, but everything about their, their language, everything about their perspective always communicates that today is all there is you know tomorrow is this hazy distant you know maybe it'll arrive maybe it won't future and and so that's what makes it very easy for the case selected types to outmaneuver them because the the, the r's they, they have a, some effective tactics but even the concept of strategy tends to be beyond the average r selected yeah, I mean, it's uh, funny to watch the leftists go after James O'Keefe. He's been dropping all these <clears throat> fairly powerful videos lately. And they're like, well, you know, he has had questionable behavior in the past. And uh, he once had to do a settlement and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, okay, but Robert Creamer, the guy he's exposing, went to jail for $2.3 million worth of bank fraud. And is now regularly meeting with the President of the United States, been to the White House 340 plus times, met more than 40 t convicted for bank fraud for $2.3 million. And like, well, but James O'Keefe has some questionable things in a hall. And it's like, I, can, I mean, how is this even remotely possible that you bring this up with a straight face? Not to mention Hillary Clinton. I've already went over that. <laughs> but, but that's the whole point is that, that there is no logic. Them. There is no reason. Everything is simply a weapon for the moment. And so, um, and they're not listening to us. You know, they're, they're, when we speak, I mean, this goes back to what we've talked about with SJWs always lie in dialectic versus rhetoric. When we're speaking in dialectic, we might as well be speaking in Chinese. They don't, they don't understand it. You know, they, 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 
they pay no attention to it whatsoever. You know, it, it's kind of like talking to a to a child when you explain to them why they can't have the chocolate candy right now. And after you finish your eloquent and medically sound explanation of why it's not good for them and why they shouldn't want it and that sort of thing, they'll look at you, you know, as if they've completely understood everything you said and then say, so can I have it now? <laughs> this, uh, oh. this, 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 <laughs> uh, you know, I can't believe I spent all this time studying logic and rhetoric and debating and Aristotelian approaches to convincing people when I could just use the magic word discredited. That, that, that study has been discredited. Those facts have been discredited. I mean, that's all they say. They never cite you any actual proof that anything is discredited. And the fact that they complain about, um, James O'Keefe, well, he selectively edits his videos. Okay, <laughs> people need to understand this tiny rant here. Okay, let's say some guy strangles a homeless guy and buries the body in some remote location. And then he gets picked up by the police and they have him on video. Now, for two hours, he rambles about nothing. And then at one point he says, oh, yeah, I totally strangled that homeless guy and he's buried over there. And they go and they find the body and they charge him. And then in the court, uh, in the trial, they play... You know, his confession. You know what they don't? They don't play the two hours before and after. They, they, play, they play the confession where he says, totally strangled that homeless guy and the body's buried over there. They say, well, that was selectively edited. It's like, no, that was edited to show where you confess to a crime and it, ex- it eliminates the extraneous. That's the whole point. It was edited for relevance. Yeah, edited for relevance. Of course it's selectively edited. Of course it is. I mean, but that's the point. Well, not only that, but, you know... The, the, the most useful thing about the SJW psychology is the fact that, um, you know, of the three laws, possibly the most important one is the, the third law, which is SJWs always project. Mm. If you want to know what bodies an SJW has buried, just pay attention to what he accuses you of. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's so funny because, like... I mean, it, somebody somebody had noted that um, I, I mean, it is astonishing how many SJWs who like to throw around, you know, misogyny and, and that sort of thing. Like half of them are, are convicted, you know, convicted girlfriend beaters. And, you know, and it comes out regularly, you know, it, it, it's not just like here and there and occasionally. Um, it frequently comes out that, that the guys who are the most aggressive Acute, you know, falsely accusing other men of, you know, being misogynistic or whatever. They tend to have these horrendous records in their personal lives in terms of their behavior towards women. Well, can I mention one so, thing? I mean, listening to, listening to people on the left, listening to Democrats complain about sexual impropriety is like, <laughs> like it's beyond jaw dropping. Like I literally, I have to get a a, a bra underneath because it's just my jaw is dropping all the time. And and you know, I mean, you could go on and on about this stuff. You know, Bonnie Frank's boyfriend and uh, Bill Clinton himself, and the fact that Hillary Clinton's chief aide's husband is sexting rape fantasies to a fifteen year old girl he knows is underage. I mean, how like the fact that Democrats can point any fingers at anyone anywhere about sexual impropriety. Again, it's just I don't even know right. what to say. But but that's but that's why it's so important to understand that we have to use the the very simple basic tactics that they use against them. You know, there's there's absolutely nothing more useless than trying to prove that Democrats are the real racists, or 
you know, using some sort of logical uh, juxtaposition in order to to say, well, that just proves. I mean, I mean, anytime I hear somebody saying things like that just proves or so and so are the real whatever. I mean, I, I know that they're basically an irrelevant conservative because they're still operating by the rules of America 2.0. You know, we're now into like America 3.5. And, and so the rules are, are different. The reality is different. The facts on the ground are different. The battles are different. Um, e- even, even as you can see from the uh, current election, even the teams are different. You know, it's, it's kind of crazy when you've got, um, you know, like my, my friend Louise Mensch. You know, I, I like Louise, but I know perfectly well that, that she is functionally, effectively, on the left. You know, yes, she's a Tory conservative, but, you know, as you know better than most, a Tory conservative is probably to the left of the average Democrat, or at least the average Democrat 20 years ago. Um, and so when it came out that Louise was uh, giving advice to the Hillary Clinton campaign, you know, that was not a surprise to me at all because she's, I have a bet with her about the election. You know, I mean, she was openly supporting Hillary. And so, you know, the fact that the fact that they might find it useful to you know, package Heat Street as something that they want to kind of try to appeal to to conservatives or whatever, um, that's fine. But, you know, when you've got somebody who's openly pro-Clinton, very aggressively opposed to the alt-right, um, it, you're, you're not dealing with somebody who is, uh, you know, on the same side of, uh, as the average Trump voter. All right. Let's talk for a moment about the joy of grudges. Because it's one of the things that I really like about Donald Trump is that he holds a grudge and will hold a grudge for many years and will bide his time for vengeance. And I guess like Peter Thiel with Gawker, um, I think I, I, I can I can nurse a grudge till it grows a good old ZZ Top style beard. And um, I, I think you have the same thing when you're talking about later, later vengeance. And um, I finally, during this election cycle, I'm getting to... Um, disgorge myself of several grudgy hairballs that I've carried around, some for, I guess you say, close to a decade with the media as a whole, that our selected uh, anger tends to sort of erupt like a tantrum and then fade from memory, fade from perspective. It's sort of like a one-night stand with incoherent rage. But I think the K, the, the conservative treehouse, they refer to it as sort of cold anger. You're like you just, you, okay, I'll, you keep going. I'll be patient. I'll bide my time. I'll build my alliances. I'll build my case. And uh, I will strike uh, at a time convenient to me. You won't see it coming because you are selected and you won't recover if I have anything to do with it. That seems to be something that our selected people, you don't hold a grudge. It's like, no, no, no. I think holding a grudge is a very, very good thing if it's justified. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, a lot of people think that I'm prone to holding grudges just because of my you know, ongoing thing with Skultzy. But honestly, I'm not. Um, you know, for me, uh, something, a situation like that, it tends to be more symbolic than anything. I mean, my issue is not with John Scalzi. I mean, he's not even the the primary focus for me. The primary focus is, is Patrick Nielsen Hayden at Tor. Scalzi is just his tool. Um, but so for me, but but you know, nobody nobody gives a damn about Patrick Nielsen Hayden. 
you know, he's an editor. He's, he's a powerful editor, but nobody knows who he is. Nobody knows what he does. You know, Scalzi was the name that everybody knew. Scalzi was the one who was making, uh, you know, making things public and that sort of thing. And so, you know, he was just a useful focus, a useful focal point for me, or to use billion, to use Will Lynn's term, a schwerpunkt. And so, um, you know, so I, I mean, I actually find that I tend to feel at this point somewhat affectionate towards my focal point. You know, because I need it in order to not give in to my habitual laziness. Mm. You know, as long as I have that symbolic focus, then I have the ability to do what I need to do. You know, if if, if I lost my symbolic focus, I would be very sad. <laughs> and, and I would need to find a new one. Um, but But there's no, um, you know... There's no anger or, or personal animosity or anything there um, from my perspective. But I will say that, um, you know, a, a grudge is fine as long as you don't let it corrode you. You know, there, there are people, um, there, there are some people that I'm close to who have had, um, you know, long, you know, almost lifelong grudges. And... It, it was in, in some cases it has functionally destroyed them. Mm. Um, in other cases, they were able to get past it. Uh, there's one case in particular, I won't go into any details, but um, it astonishes me that, that the person who has a legitimate cause for a lifelong grudge just, um, you know, as a good Christian, decided that they were going to put it aside. And what's astonishing is they now have actually a pretty good and positive relationship with the person that, that they had the grudge against. And so, but I will say that in these cases, the, the sins tended to be more of omission mm. rather than commission. And, and, and also, so when you're dealing with an enemy, it's very different. A, a grudge against an enemy is necessary as long as they're an enemy. Um, I think a grudge against a person who harmed you because they're just stupid and short-sighted and greedy, what's really, what's the point? Because like I said, like, like the fox or like the rabbit in the meadow a year later, he doesn't even know, <laughs> he doesn't even know why you're, why you're ripping him to pieces. Well, you, you can't have grudges against the stupid because that's not a big enough enemy. I mean, you, you can't spend your life fighting stupidity. I mean, you'll never run. You, you, there aren't enough arms in the universe sometimes to knock that statue off its pedestal. And I right. just, for me, you know, I mean, the, the grudges, you know, I, I, I was in the art world as, as an actor and a playwright and, and a director and found the artwork world owned by the state, you know, controlled by the state, controlled by the leftists and uh, found that, tough to advance in. I think I had obvious and decent talents in that area, but uh, it was just too much of an uphill slog to, to get anywhere because I wasn't of that ilk even when I was in my 20s, early 20s. And in academia, it was the same kind of thing, especially up here in Canada, you know, controlled by the leftists, controlled by the socialists, a bunch of Marxists floating around. And, you know, there was a sort of respect for each other's intelligence, but they weren't going to give an inch or give a quarter when it came to sort of progressing uh, in uh, in academia. And um, in the in the business world, it was better for, in, in a lot of ways. But there's a lot of corruption when it was involved in a, in a sort of um, 
a, a boom situation, like a, a real bubble. Uh, a lot of corruption mm-hmm. went on there. And I couldn't have any grudge against individuals because it seemed to me that individuals, they're just the shadows cast by concepts. They're not most people are not individuated and think for themselves. They're sort of infested or inhabited by a variety of perspectives that have been inflicted or, or wooed upon them. So for me, the grudge was not, oh, there's this person or that person or even this university or that business or, or this theater group or whatever, because they were all just shadows cast by the concepts. For me, the grudge became the concepts as a whole, you know, the collectivism, the, the irrationality, the, the narcissism, the, uh, the, the sort of casual cruelty of hedonism where the future is always sacrificed for the present. Those are what I set my sights on, because to me, those are worthy foes. Individuals, you know, it's sort of like having a combine harvester and saying, well, I'm going after that wheat bit. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, right. I want I want the whole field. I want everything. And I think that for me, growing the grudge from an individual to a set of concepts made an enemy worthy of my efforts and helps to stimulate me to, to do better. Right, but we, we all have different motivations you know to to go back to that book that i edited and that you uh did the audiobook for uh something that mike cernovich writes about in maga mindset is that we all have a different vision you know he, he says my vision is not yours you know his his mantra is um i will be too big to be ignored okay now that works for mike um that does not work for me because, you know, I basically live in a cave um, and don't, you know, very seldom go anywhere, have no desire to, you know, be famous, be on a stage. I could never do what Milo does. Mm. You know, that 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 to me, uh, it, you know, if you said, OK, um, you need to either work in a coal mine or go do what Milo does, um, referring to the speeches, um, uh, you know, I, I think I'd choose the coal mine. And, and so our, our visions are going to be different. What's going to motivate you? You know, you, you need these broad uh, conceptual motivations in order to um, give you something to fight against. You know, and obviously, you know, it it motivates you very well because you crank out videos like nobody I know. You know, um, it's, again, it's the one I place think- on the web where I hope quantity is quality, but yeah. I hope they're not dime store novels, but yeah, I know. Hey, Shakespeare wrote a lot of plays in a short amount of... Anyway, go on. No, but, but there's... You know, I actually experimented with getting into some YouTube stuff back when, you know, earlier on, and it wasn't for me. You know, I, I don't... Um, I can talk with you, but I can't talk to myself. Mm. I, I, can't, I can't just talk to a camera. It's, you know, it'd be me looking at the camera going... So you gonna say anything back? Hey, hey, robot, how's it going? <laughs> but um, you know, so I, I suspect that your your thespian training served you well mm. in that. Um, and so, so because you have different talents and different motivations and different uh, objectives, the um, the grudge that you need, the motivation that you need, whatever it is that, that you need, is going to be different than mine. Um, you know, I, I need that. Why do I need a symbolic focal point? I have no idea, but I know I do, you know. And so um, in, in that sense, I do agree with you. If, you, if, you're, if you're talking about, you know, grudge in the larger sense, um, I mean, there's no question that, I mean, for me, the dislike, the distaste and the disgust for the concepts that you're talking about 
I mean, that's not even just a, that's not, a, a grudge doesn't do it justice. I mean, I have Visceral hatred? A, yeah, I, I have, I have a, a deep and abiding and unrelenting hatred for that. Um, there, there is no circumstance whatsoever that I find any value in it. Um, you know, to me, it, it, it's, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm religious, so you know, to me, satanic. that is it, it is literally an because it, it, it's a, it's satanic as all our selected stuff is at least for me. I'm sorry to interrupt, uh, Vox, but it's satanic because it offers the promise of easy happiness, but it only provides long term destruction. And isn't that the endless and final temptation of the devil? It's the only trick he's got of his smoky sleeve is to offer you relief from anxiety and happiness in the moment, like any drug dealer, at the expense of your long term survivability, individually or as a culture. So to me, these ideas, and I was raised religious as well, a, a Christian, these ideas are as close to satanic as I can conceive of. Well, right. And, and it's interesting, too, when you think about uh, what was promised to his disciples by Jesus Christ was the hard and narrow path. I mean, when, when you're talking about the hard and narrow path versus the broad and easy way traveled by most, I mean, you could almost be describing our case, our selection versus our case selection versus our selection. there. Um, and so, I mean, to me, that's one of the things that is, is so remarkable uh, from a philosophical point of view is how many of these um, various, not only eucivic, but civilizational concepts all fit together broadly. You know, even though, uh, you know, even though uh, I might be religious, Milo's religious, you're not, Mike's not, um, and yet we all see the same pattern, that we all see the same, um, when none of us sees the whole picture. There's nobody, you know, I don't care. George Soros doesn't see the whole picture. Nobody does. Um, but it's interesting to me how many people on the right, especially of the alt-right variety, tend to see the same patterns at work, regardless of what our core beliefs are. And, and at the same time, it is remarkable how many people on the other side um, spout exactly the same nonsense, despite the fact that None of them appears to be doing any, you know, they're all listening to different sources. They all have different influences. And yet it doesn't matter if you're talking to somebody who is, you know, into ancient Greek philosophy or, you know, 20th century uh, Frankfurt School cultural Marxism. The, the, the conclusions that they reach, the patterns that they follow end up being exactly the same. Hmm. And so... Um, you know, it it's going to be it, it's going to be interesting someday. I mean, one of the reasons why I, I I hope that there is some sort of existence beyond this one is just because it'd be so nice to find out why these patterns exist, how these patterns exist, what, whether I don't even care, I don't care what the answer is. It, it's just um, it, it's so remarkable that there are these constant. Um, behavioral models and um, the, the, the fact that they penetrate so deeply into our lives and, and into our, the, the, the destinies that, are, that we end up creating for ourselves you know, through our stupid 
actions, our, our wise decisions, you know, I mean, how you got to where you are was a combination of, you know, smart decisions, stupid actions, you know, everybody just ends up where they are one way or another. Very few people get exactly where they plan to be. Um, and yet all of those, those consequences do tend to come down to something as simple as were you raised and are you the product of case selection? Or, you know, were you fathered indifferently, cast aside to survive or not on your own? And, and are you just a, a fish in the big school of, of SJW fish rapidly changing direction every time the narrative shifts? Yeah, yeah and I, I was thinking while you were talking about Milo and, and Mike and yourself and myself and, and other people that, that I get along with well. And I, I think a lot of it has to do with, although you're religious and I'm not, there is a larger narrative that we're part of. And and for me, it's philosophy. For you, it is religion and other things. I'm not going to pretend to know your entire motivations. And the ra- for the rabbit, there's only the rabbit. There's the rabbit, and then there's another rabbit's hole that you crash into to make more rabbits. That, that that's, that's all there is. There's rabbits, sex, grass and running away that's that's the whole deal there's nothing bigger now for the wolf though there's the pack for the and this is not collectivism for the wolf there is something larger than his individual survival that is necessary for his survival and for k's you need something bigger than yourself and the people i have the most in common with are people who are willing to make the sacrifice of personal comfort for the sake of a larger goal a compassionate goal you know Michael, milo of course comes along as a bit of a hard ass and a cynic and so on but i you know he has a heart as wide as the amazon you know he really cares about people who are being harmed by a very toxic anti-masculine uh, anti-k if i can put those words in his mouth culture and uh, mike uh, very passionate uh, scott very passionate for for helping uh, the world as a whole and again willing to take personal hits for the sake of the larger goal and this i think is what people don't understand about Trump who don't come from that perspective. So if you have something that's larger than yourself that you're willing to sacrifice your personal comfort for, you look at Trump and you say, you magnificent bastard. Because he, and he points this out in speeches. He says, look, I had a great life. I mean, I got a beautiful wife. I got grandkids. I got a number one TV show. I could enjoy the fruits of my labor. I'm, you know, 70. I could retire. I could keep working. But I was having a blast. Everyone loved me. Nobody wrote up negative things about me. I wasn't called a racist, a sexist, misogynist, Islamophobe, you name it. Now, for those of us who have a larger mission, we look at that and say, oh, I get that. I get that. Like, what? A courageous thing to do. Now, for people on the left who can only transmit or, or understand things in terms of personal advantage, they don't care about the principles. Uh, they just want personal advantage. And if that means smashing people according to principles, they'll do it. Not because they love the principles any more than I love a club. If a bear is attacking me, I just <laughs> grab what I need and, and do what I have to. But the left, of course, look at Donald Trump and you could see you can see this in waves when they try to understand him. It's like, well, it must be a publicity stunt, right? Because it has to only be about Donald Trump. It can't be about anything larger. It can't be about him, the noblesse oblige, or or the feeling, you know, he's he's been given a lot, and, and if you've been given a lot, much should be expected from you in terms of what you can do for society. I think I've been given a lot of gifts, and I really feel an obligation to use those gifts to help 
make society a better place because I love living in the society that I live in, largely because people use their prodigious talents, some direct ancestors of mine, to make the world wonderful for me to live in. So I'm damned if I'm not going to use my talents to, to pay that forward. But you see the left trying to fathom Donald Trump. And they it's a publicity stunt. He's only in it for the power. He's in it for the grandeur. He just wants to leave his legacy. Like they can't, genuinely can't conceive that he could be hooking into a larger story of Western civilization, which he's openly saying, Western civilization is great. I'm here to defend Western civilization. Western civilization should flourish. It should be survive. It's under attack. Openly says it. And they can only project, as, you know, back to your point, right? They can only project their own narcissistic hedonism onto him and say, well, it can't be for anything noble. It can't be. It's, 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 it's something petty. It's something narcissistic. It's something for his ego. But again, all it does is reveal the soullessness of his attackers, not the grandeur of what he's doing. Well, the most powerful thing that he said in one of his recent speeches, and, and I, I was really, I was really kind of touched by it, was that uh, when he said, um, uh, I, I take these, I, I, I'm, I'm being attacked a lot, but I take these, these uh, attacks for you gladly. You know, because he understands that he is the symbol of their hate for us. You know, they hate his supporters every bit as much as they hate him. They hate what he's saying. They hate what he stands for. You know, and, and he, because he has put himself in that position, um, and, and he put himself in that position clearly, knowing that he was going to be going to take that kind of heat. Um, and so uh, what was meaningful about that to me was the way that, that he's, he didn't just say that he, he was willing to do it. He said he did it gladly. And, and I can relate to that a bit because, you know, I have, uh, I have the benefit of probably the most loyal following on the Internet. I mean, no, no disrespect to your own. But, um, but the thing is that... Uh, that loyalty is a two-way street, you know, and, and my VFM know that, you know, I will do whatever I can for them just as they, they do it for me. And, and, you know, even with uh, one of our, <laughs> what there's a, a guy in the media, he refers to the sort of this loose uh, affiliation um, of, of us, uh, he, he says, I call you guys the cabal, <laughs> but he said, um, one of the things that really struck him was the way that, uh, nobody ever bitches about each other. Mm. And, uh, you know, when, when Roosh was under attack by the, the global media during his speech tour, um, a lot of people were after me to disassociate myself from him. And, you know, just as uh, I know Milo at one point came under a lot of heat to disassociate himself from me. And um, the thing is, there, there's nothing more that tells you more about a, a person's character as when they're presented with that choice. You know, when the SJWs tell you, we're going to attack him, but you can be our friend and we'll leave you alone as long as you turn your back on him and just let us do it. You know, but I would rather stand beside, you know, two guys who have the courage that I know are not going to run than, than you know, 20,000 rabbits 
who are going to be running away going, I'm just glad they're not after me. You know, like, like, that, like the rabbits you saw and, and that just ignored the fox. Um, and, and so I think that um, the, you know, whether Trump wins or loses, he has set an example that those who will come after him are going to do well to follow. You know, yes, he's a flawed individual. Yes, he's, you know, he's he's got his track record and so forth. Um, but the fact that he was, you know, the funny thing about Trump is that, you know, as a playwright, I mean, he, he is the story of of uh, Henry VIII. Um, and not not the not the full. Maybe I may have, have the wrong Henry the Fifth. I think you mean. Henry V. Or as we used to say in theater, Hank Sank, because we were just so cool. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's that that inevitable need to petty and you know make petty and trivialize the noble. Um, but you know, I mean, you have this here. You have this beautiful narrative of the wastrel prince, uh, you know, living his his hedonistic life, and then suddenly you know maturing and and hearing the call of the nation. Now, in Trump's case, um, it, it took him till he was seventy or so, but but that only makes that only makes the story all the more all the more powerful, and that's why I think that if he wins, and I still believe that that's a possibility, despite what you know the the polls say, um, if he wins, um, it's certainly going to make for one hell of a story, and it'll be very interesting to see what comes next. Yeah, I wouldn't trust the polls as far as I can throw them. The polls are just another media slash government program designed to dispirit people. And, uh, you know, the messages we're getting of like, all is lost. And, the t-, you know, I feel like the guy falling down, hitting his head on the Titanic's propeller at the end of the movie. No, no, it's nonsense. I mean, there's a lot of people out there, the shy Trump voters. And the reality is, um, my perspective is, if Trump loses, that's it. There's no more story. There's no more story. Because if Trump loses, what's going to happen is Hillary's going to get in. Hillary is going to legalize. And and boy, you'll find out just how many illegal immigrants there are in America when Hillary gets in and tries to draw them out onto the uh, citizenship and voter rolls. If if Ann Coulter's right, it's going to be like 20 or 30 million. 20 or 30 million guaranteed new votes for the Democrats. Plus, she's going to be importing lots of people from the third world, from Muslim countries and so on. Again, guaranteed votes for the uh, the Democrats. Um, but as bad that's as it. it. There will be no there will be no Republican Party ever again. I mean, it's it's like uh, California. Sorry, to, California used to be a reliably Republican state until ah, uh, good old Republican hero uh, Ronald Reagan went and gave amnesty, and now uh, it's as red as red can be, and there's no possibility of recovering it. That's the rest of the United States. If Trump loses, if Trump loses, uh, there's no spine left to st- to stand up for America. There's no spine left to inspire people in Europe. I'm telling you, and I know it's coming down to these last two weeks, don't believe the polls. Get out there and act. I say this to, to the people listening and watching this. If Trump loses, that's it. The Republic and the West is done. See, I, I'm going to disagree with you there. I do think that the Republic is done. But you know, the nation is not the country. You know, the, the nations will rise again. Um, you know, in Europe, the... Uh, that things are getting very close to the breaking point. And uh, liberal democracy or the, the charade of liberal democracy that we have may be done. But, you know, I always, I mean, I'm in Spain right now. Spain was conquered by the Moors 
Um, and it took the Spanish Christians 500 years to drive them out. And yet they did. And so no matter what happens, you know, I mean, uh, and, and maybe that this is this is something that I also also like to remind. I'm, with, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm with you there. I'm not predicting 500 years out. I'm, I'm with you there. But I'm just saying for the foreseeable future. But go ahead. Yeah. Well, well, the, well, the thing that I always like to point out, because, um, you know, sometimes you've got some SJWs who are, you know, they, I, they might, I think they're actually paid by Soros because they come and they say the same things mm. every time, but they have different names every time. But you can tell, you know, as a, as a professional three-time Hugo nominated editor, I can tell that it's, it's the same style. It's the same guy. You know, e- either they're paste, either they're pasting stuff in there or it's just the same guy. Um, but what, what's funny is that they always talk, try to talk about how, oh, you're so outnumbered. You're outnumbered. You can never win. And, and I always like to, uh, to remind them that, you know, as a Christian, I always like to say, all we need is 12. <laughs> well, and it's at one point uh, when we only had twelve. It's the IQ gap that matters, and, and you know what's interesting. And I, I just want to share this so that people can flame me in the comments because you know I always have to have at least one of those. But um, I gladly take this punishment for all of you, huh? Why does that ring a bell? <laughs> tell, tell me, tell me. For me, it's Socrates, but for you, it might be. Somebody slightly different. Somebody say 500 so years later. I mean, uh, I gladly take this punishment for all of you. Ah, uh, yeah. I, I, deja vu, ringing a bell. The name will come to me. Jesus. No, wait. Hang on. Hang on. No, no. I lost it again. <laughs> but it's, it, it's interesting, though. Um, the, the thing that concerns me the most about, about a Hillary presidency, and maybe it's because I live in Europe, <laughs> but... Um, I'm concerned about the fact that uh, she will bring Ukraine into NATO because that's something that Russia cannot permit. Right, 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 right. That, that's going to be part of the dominoes to war that she seems to be beating the drums so much for. Right. In, fact, in fact, I even wrote a post a few, a few weeks ago where I was talking about how um, strategically it might make more, uh, sense for Vladimir Putin to invade Ukraine this week. Yeah, I wrote that several weeks ago. Now, obviously, so far that hasn't happened. Um, I don't think it's necessarily likely to happen. But if Putin was certain that Clinton was going to win, and he was certain that she was going to bring Ukraine into NATO, he would invade. And so maybe it's a good sign that he hasn't, because perhaps, perhaps, that might indicate that he believes that you know, Trump has a reasonable chance of winning because, you know, one thing that we know about Hillary Clinton is that she is going to uh, significantly increase the level of U.S. bellicosity, and she's probably going to get, she's definitely going to get actively involved in war by proxy in Syria. She and given some of the movements that have been taking place and some, uh, by you know putting American troops in Ukraine and in Poland and that sort of thing. Um, there is a reasonable chance that there will be some sort of direct conflict in in Eastern Europe. This is something that uh, 
you know, in my mind, in my heart, I sometimes refer to Hillary as the pirate queen, our queen, because she's so our selected and appeals to so many our selected people. The one thing that's really, really essential to remember, Donald Trump cares about America and really cares about Americans. And that's one of the reasons why he's willing to take these hits for the cause that he believes in and willing to confront politically incorrect truths and take all of the normal stuff that comes from that. So he's not going to send Americans off to war because he doesn't want to hurt his tribe. He doesn't want to hurt his tribe. The important thing to remember, in an R-selected environment, you are interchangeable and expendable. That is the fundamental difference between nationalism and globalism. For globalists, they're, the, you know, they're in charge and we're just a bunch of ants indistinguishable, right? Which is why, oh, you know, whether you're here or here or here, whether you swarm over there or these people, doesn't matter. If the ant is over right. here or the ant is over there, it's still an ant. They don't recognize culture. They don't recognize philosophy. They don't recognize values. We're all interchangeable. And everything which is interchangeable is expendable. You know, if you've got a big bucket of nuts and you only need one and you're driving someplace and one bounces out of the car, you're like, I don't care because they're all there. But if you only have that one nut, you're going to circle back and, and go and get it, right? So th- right. it's really, really important to remember that a vote for Hillary Clinton is a vote for your entire insignificance in all of her machinations and calculations. She's not going to care about you any more than she cared about the people in Syria, any more than she cared about the people in Libya, any more than she cared about the women her husband is reported to have preyed upon, any more than she cares about all the laws she's broken. Any more, She doesn't care. Doesn't care. You are... A step on a ladder for her to get to power. She doesn't care. Once she's past you, and this is what, you know, black community complains about this. You know, the Dems bunch, they bungee in and they, oh, we care. We, oh, we got your vote. Bye. You know, it's like the, the, the voting booty call. You know, you, you've got the walk of shame out of the voting booth knowing they're never going to call again until they need you the next time. And right. this, who would want to vote themselves into a bloody mist of political insignificance, because that's all you're going to be is a cog in the machine for her to pursue her global chess game of, of power lust. Um, I believe it is a soul entirely corrupted beyond redemption in any context. And putting that woman in power turns you into a pawn to be used at her will with no value other than how you serve her preferences. And that is a terrifying position. And K's see that. That's why K's are getting anxious. But the R's are like, dum-de-dum-de-dum, we might get free college. Yay! <laughs> hey, you know who else got free college? GI's coming back from a bloody multi-continent war in the 1940s. They got free college too. I have this fantasy. I'll, I'll stop after this. Thank you for the rent. I have this fantasy that, that one day there's going to be Maybe before the election, maybe after, people are going to say, all right, hands up, everyone who voted for Hillary Clinton. Hands up, everyone who voted for Hillary Clinton. Good job. You're now drafted for her wars. Get your shit. The bus leaves in 10. All right. Well, actually, I have to say that I, I enjoy your rants because, uh, you know, being interviewed by you is literally the easiest interview in the media. <laughs> Just, just find something that pokes his, his his irritation center, and then get some popcorn. Right? <laughs> am I am I that transparent? Yes, apparently. So. No, but what's great about it is that I don't have to worry about you know putting my foot in something, <laughs> or, or any awkward pauses whatsoever, or having to or breathing between my thoughts. Well, the thing is that you know both both Mike and I have. Uh, largely stopped talking to the media. I mean, he did the, the New Yorker piece, but th- that was a special case. Um, the because Why? You know, what we both figured Why? out was that it, it it did us no benefit. You know, they would spend like three or four hours talking to you. They'll spend like three or four hours talking to you, 
just so they can try to get you to say one little thing that then they can inflate out of, of proportion and turn into a weapon against you. Yeah. So oh, no, no. The why of, the why was not why didn't you talk to the media? The Why, why would you ever talk to the media? You know, it, it's, well, it's tough to make converts to glory at the Church of Satan. That's just my particular thought. <laughs> well, what, what I've taken to is, you know, when we have uh, certain books, um, I like to kind of troll the media mm. by sending out press releases. And so what I like to do is I, I send them out in the persona as the Supreme Dark Lord. <laughs> so, so it's got all this stuff about drinking the blood of SJWs and these sorts of things. And that my favorite part is, you know, writing mm. some... It tastes, the- tastes like self-pity. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> right. But basically writing some over-the-top press release in, with, in the Dark Lord persona and then seeing different reporters from the New York Times and Wall Street Journal reading it. Like seeing that it's been opened and read, <laughs> just knowing that they're thinking, "What the hell is this?" You because know, I defy them to use that. You know, I, I want to see them actually try to use that as as the rhetorical weapon. You know, did you know that that he flays his personal slaves in his basement? <laughs> But anyhow, I have I have not yet. I, there have been a couple um, blogs that have picked up the stuff, but unfortunately, they've yet to run in any um, major main, uh, major media outlets. That's that's kind of my dream. I'm sorry. Oh, these uh, these press releases and so on. Yeah. Mm. So they but, they may um, be a little bit over the top, even for the mainstream media. But uh, <laughs> I'm sure they'll be catching up. I don't know. I mean, I, I sort of I know they have a lot of power, and and for that I give them props. You know, they've worked very hard to get to the the sort of empty thrones of manipulation that they currently inhabit. But to some degree, fighting the media, I don't know. It just feels like kicking an old guy because you know their average viewership on TV, you know, like late fifties, early sixties. I mean, good lord, who reads a newspaper these days? You know, like I mean, they have to be specially designed for like, arthritic claw hands or something like that. You know, a special Cryptkeeper edition with you know seventy-two point font for the uh, people who uh, are in the old age homes. So I mean, they're they've really attached themselves to a. Um, a, a, uh, a readership that literally is dying off, like not just <laughs> figuratively, but literally. So right. I just, you know, and this is why they're so desperate. You know, it, it's this election or bust. You know, they either get their people in uh, to, to office. They either help pave the way to Hillary Clinton getting into office or, um, you know, there's going to be a net drain of the illegal immigrants south as they either are deported or self-deport. There's, I think, going to be, I imagine there's going to be some slowdown or pause on immigration as 83% of Americans desperately, desperately want and have been saying so for 30 years. And that is going to vastly undercut the base. And Donald Trump knows how to talk to people without needing the media. He needs the media now because he wants to get elected. I think after right. he gets elected, he's going to go straight to Facebook, Periscope, YouTube, you name it. He's going to bypass these guys completely. And uh, if the Dems are done, which they will be, if there's a demographic shift back towards uh, more of a European base uh, of Americans, if the Dems are done and Donald Trump's going straight to the people and bypassing the media, man, we, we could be like two weeks away from the end of this, not to insult the word, cabal uh, that has been ruling the West for, what, 150 years? Oh, it's glorious to the consummation devoutly to be wished. But I, I think that, I think that you know, I mean, maybe I'm a bit more strongly case-elected than most, given that on my paternal side, is American revolutionary and my maternal side is Mexican revolutionary. Um, 
Yeah, we were, we were talking about this the other day, and, and some of the people were predicting, you know, doom and gloom if, if Hillary won and, and the world descended into chaos. And I said, you know, I, somebody looked over at me, and I was just apparently smiling or something. I said, well, what are you smiling about? And I said, well, you know, I kind of always wanted to be a medieval warlord. You know, so th- there's a silver lining in every Yeah. Cloud. That's no. that's all well and good. You know, Dungeons and Dragons is fine until you get a toothache or or you need an appendectomy or, you know, like they're not having much fun in Venezuela at the moment, hunting pigeons in the town square and trying to desperately find some antibiotics because they got a cut two days ago. I mean, I know what you mean. I mean, the, it looks fun, <laughs> but uh, it's more than dice rolling when you actually have well, to live with that kind of nonsense. Oh, of, of, cor- of course. Um, but, you know, the, the thing is, is that that's that's the thing about the case selected mentality is is there's honor in the challenge you know i i think that when the they when the soros trolls are are predicting doom and gloom and trying to get uh trying to demoralize us Mm. they don't understand that you know there's a there's a certain mentality that says you know oh well we're, we're surrounded and we have no chance um, let's take as many of the bastards with us as we can. <laughs> That's right. That's you know, right. I, I mean, it, 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 when I hear those messages, I don't think, oh, well, gee, then I should give up. I mean, my, my first thought is, okay, well, let, let's, make sh- let's make sure that we're escorted to Valhalla by an honor guard of thousands. <laughs> you know, um, it's it, uh, better it's, to. Um... Die on your feet, then live on your knees. That is the case-selected motto. And uh, there are conditions under which life is, uh, you know, for our selected people, they get by under any such system. You know, they'll find a way to survive. They don't make waves. They'll just, you know, have TV and food and and sex and it'll be fine. But there are, of course, people constituted by which um, any form of really overt control over one's capacity to think and to express, to argue, to reason, to improve the lot of humanity with with eloquence and passion. Uh, If that is taken away, it's like, okay, uh, and tomorrow I will be doing what exactly? Well, the the thing is, uh, we just published a a book called uh, Cleo and Me by the Israeli military historian Martin Van Creveld. And he's a brilliant guy. I mean, he's probably the one legitimate genius that I've ever met. Um, uh, uh, you know, some people call him the heir to Clausewitz. I mean, his, his, his level of thinking is that deep and profound. And he's, he's actually fundamentally transformed the way that we view warfare. And, and so it was really interesting because he wrote this book because he wanted to write a intellectual auto- autobiography. It's not about, you know, you know, and then I, I didn't get a pony for my 10th birthday. So I cried, you know, there's, there's, no, there's none of that kind of stuff. It, it's all about his intellectual development and, and how he researches, how he teaches and, and how he uh, happened to have the, make the mental adjustments that led him to some of these, these uh, conceptual breakthroughs that he had. And one of the things that, that he, he writes about, I, I think he, you know, you've got nothing in common with this guy you know, in terms of his background and, and whatnot. <laughs> he's, but, he's, he's really smart, Steph. But, but you, you got – no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm not that sensitive. I just – that's kind of but, funny. <laughs> but what, what was interesting, though, is that he says that um, to not be able to 
uh, think and write as he as he pleases is the very worst thing he can imagine. Right. And and, and this is somebody who has twice been under rocket fire in in Israel. Um, you know his uh, his uh, he's descended from Holocaust survivors. I mean, this is somebody who knows about human tragedy. You know, but but still, despite that, you know, he doesn't live in fear. Um, and the only thing that the, the thing that he considers to be the, the the most unimaginable thing is to have his mind chained. You know the way that the SJWs want to enchain our minds, and and so, um, you know, and that's why I think that, um, you know, what 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 we're building, like with you know, we talked a little bit about infogalactic and stuff earlier. You know, what we're building there is alternatives to the giant social media prisons that have been erected. You know, um, Wikipedia has five hundred and thirty-one thought police. They, they call them admins, but what they really are is thought police. You know, they are there to enforce the narrative that has been agreed upon by the SJWs. And I'm sorry to interrupt but just very, very briefly, but yeah. if you can create, you have no desire to control. So the people who want to control other people, the thought police, by definition, are not people with original thoughts, are not people who can create, are not fertile minds. Uh, it is small minds that want to control. It is great minds that wish to create. So uh, the, the people who are um, producing things get written about in Wikipedia, and it's the tiny-minded people who control the flow of information. They do that because they are sterile intellectually, and all they can do is monitor well, not only that, but they live in fear. I mean, that's the one that, you know, we talk a lot about the uh, the sexually libertine side of the R-selected. But the other thing that, that the K-selected tends to forget is that the R-types live in constant fear hmm. of everything. Because they, you know, disaster can strike at any time from anywhere, and there's nothing they can do about it. So it's natural that they do tend to live in fear, and, and that fear tends to manifest itself in a desire to control whatever they can. Especially so, if you're dependent on the state or dependent upon prestige or dependent upon the good opinion of others. If you are what Rand used to call a social metaphysician, somebody who doesn't say what is true, but what can I get away with? Not what is real, but what do people believe is real? If you are a dependent personality, then you know the, the parasite always has to monitor the host. The host can survive without the parasite, but not vice versa, which is why they are so fascistic uh, in their monitoring. Right, and and so the the that fear leads to that need to control, and that need to control ends up needing to repress, you know, because because we will not be controlled, you know, the 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 type of person, you know, the, the type of person that I want contributing to Infogalactic is the kind of person who's constantly getting banned <laughs> you know, at, at at Wikipedia, you know, the kind of people that that are that the kind of people that Andrew over at Gab wanted to come on to Gab. Were the people literally getting banned by you know Ricky Vaughn is there Milo is there um, uh, Paz Dickinson is there Those I'm there and I will be posting more after the election kind of busy right now but I'm there as well just to people will check yeah. we'll put the link below yeah and, and uh, Scott Adams is there now because all of these are um, intelligent insightful creative people who have a lot to say and. Twitter wants to silence them. Twitter, you know, Twitter wants to control them. And you know, who, who are we going to appeal to? 
the, the, the Trust and Safety Council are the, the most extreme out-of-controlled SJWs attached to Twitter. <laughs> yeah, my, my glorious future is these um, empty of creative minds and full of nothing but cat pictures and what I had for dinner last night. Let, let's close off by talking about, one of, to me, one of the glorious aspects of the Trump revolution, which is the revelation of uh, friends and foes. The, 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 there has been, to me, you know, as the giant orange head behemoth has arisen over the uh, American landscape. Uh, it has been remarkable to me to see what were fairly, uh, fairly blurred lines beforehand become very, very stark. And seeing who falls on one side and who falls on the other has been quite a revelation. I mean, if I go back sort of a year and a half ago about the people who I respect, the people who I follow, the people who I really like to read and listen I mean, forget the arts. I mean, God knows I can't watch another De Niro film to save my life, which is a shame. You know, as a good actor, or at least was a good actor, there's so many people who's like, oh, please stop talking so I can continue to enjoy your creative side. Oh, please. I used to like Star Trek and now that. Anyway, so the, the artistic side is usual garbage because, you know, high creativity is often associated with the art stuff and they've just gone completely Hillary. Plus, you know, they want to sell to a worldwide audience so they can't be nationalistic. It's the whole nonsense that goes on. But on the intellectual side, I mean, the people, it's at least been cut in half. Now, of course, I found new people who are interested in, new people to follow, but at least 50, probably closer to 60 or 70% of people have just gone crazy. Like, they just gone nuts. Not not because they're against Trump. I mean, be against Trump, but don't be stupid about it. Don't be idiotic about it. Don't be like, well, he's a monster or he's authoritarian. It's like, I get you don't have an argument, so you're going to wave this word authoritarian around like it means something. But the, the, the it is shown how crazy people can get when confronted by something they cannot fathom and lack the self-knowledge to understand why they have a reaction to it. Uh, and and therefore lash out in very very childish and immature ways. That has been the, this sort of scrubbing of people I sort of formerly thought were kind of on the right side of of the fence, and now like are like so far over the fence they're almost come round again. That has been one of the great gifts um, because you can spend a long time in the orbit of people who will betray you before you know it. But boy, has he ever given that gift to all of us? Well, I think that. What we're seeing there is, is something we'll have to talk about some other time, but that's where you're starting to see elements of, of the male sociosexual hierarchy. And uh, you know, Trump is an alpha. Mm. He's, a, he's a very alpha, alpha male. And in the press corps the, is predominantly, you know, the, the chattering classes are predominantly made up of gammas, the, the men. Um, you know that they, they. I mean, and you can you can tell. That you don't even have to know much about them to know that you know your average uh, media commentator is not somebody who did well with girls in high school. <laughs> right. You know, um, you, you know, and so like I was particularly disappointed with Jonah Goldberg. You know, I, I liked uh, Jonah's liberal fascism. Um, I think that you know, yes, he he kind of he's kind of clung to the young Turk. Uh, position uh, um, uh, or, or persona a, a little longer than he should have, but um, you know his 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 reasoning. I'd, I'd interviewed him um, years ago. Um, I, he always struck me as a, a cut above the average commentator, and then to see his just you know complete lack of inability to, or his complete inability to see 
the political scene for what it was and to, and to see events for what they were was very disappointing to me. But what I realized is that that type of, of low-rank male has a visceral hatred. It's totally irrational. It's basically the visceral hatred of the nerd who is upset at the quarterback, you know, in high school. And so um, I'm not saying that's the whole thing. I'm just saying that there's, a, there's no. I see that. I just sort of wanted to expand the 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 guy who's also the grand chess master and the guy who like it's not just the physical abilities because intellectuals have I think reason when they're younger to be frustrated at society's veneration of brute force or brute physical attractiveness, which is generally unearned. But of course, uh, it, it's more alpha in terms of intellectual and uh, uh, and power in the culture and so on. So I'm sorry to just be annoying and jump in. I just want to mention that, but please no, keep no, going. That, that's fine. Um, but the, you know, the thing is that um, that mentality, you know, because because that sort of uh, your your position in the hierarchy, your psychological position in the hierarchy tends to remain the same even if your personal circumstances change, mm. and even if you change, um, you're always going to have the, the scars or the shape of your formative years. And so, uh, you know, some of these guys are very successful guys. You know, they're on TV, they're famous, mm. whatever. But it's very clear that, that some of them never got over their um, just blinding anger for the, you know, for the... The, the guy who goes out with the hot girls and doesn't deserve them, <laughs> you know, I mean, which, which of course is a ridiculous concept, but, but again, it's not coming from a rational place. Um, and so to me, it's been very revealing to see how, um, to see which commentators uh, tended to gravitate towards Trump's nationalism and then which ones didn't. And then of course, you know, you have the inevitable, um, uh, you have the inevitable uh, national interest stuff where, you know, it, it just happened to be a lot of the conservative Jews who ended up going, you know, not supporting Trump because they were concerned that his nationalism might be bad for Israel, um, despite the fact that, you know, Trump's very pro-Israel. But, uh, you know, the, the, there's there's a lot of these different complicating factors. And Trump has been wonderfully clarifying in terms of causing these lines to be drawn, who really is, who really is in support of America's national interests? Who really isn't, mm. you know, who, who talks about the American national interest and yet is willing to go against it at the drop of a hat? You know, who is, who is willing to, uh, who is capable of understanding the significance of 30 million new democratic voters and who is so stupid that they can't do the math? You know, well, these are different. These are all different issues. And wait, yet the, but, but enough about libertarians. <laughs> who, who, <laughs> enough about libertarians who love states' rights. You know, you don't want to. You want to have everything devolved down to the state rights, but somehow are negative towards nationalism compared to globalism. You know, of, of, like nationalism is better than globalism in the same way that states' rights is better than federal. Anyway, that's the topic yeah. for another time. So, the last thing I wanted to mention, uh, sneak one in under the rug here, is um, that uh, our selected people like war and they like war because case elected people get killed and this is really something to to remember when it comes to to voting and so on um it is case elected people who end up 
either going into the military or flourishing within the military, because the military is a lot about deferral of gratification, hard work, discipline, team play, uh, martial courage, uh, hunting, uh, masculinity. I mean, before the military got totally cucked by the social justice warriors let's do a whole show on that one day because like how that happened is like the one place i think that wouldn't happen how is it that gamers can survive social justice warriors but people with tanks can't anyway that's a topic for another you're not pear-shaped enough that's the problem but um yeah uh the our selected people love starting wars because our selected people don't go fight k-selected people do they understand that we're the enemy. And I really want to remind people, we better wake up to that fact too, because the consequences are going to be dire. Yeah, their core strategy is, uh, let's you and him fight. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, to the death. To the death. And the only thing that's going to prevent it is a fear that it's, uh, some weapon of mass destruction is going to hit the R-selected uh, nest, which is anyway. All right. Well, listen, uh, I really want to thank you for a great conversation. I'm looking forward to everyone saying, I thought it was long. Turned out it flew by just like it does for me. I can't it's a quarter and a nine almost here. Uh, so it flies by for me. Hopefully it flies by for everyone else. Please, please remember, pick up. Vox Day's books, they're great. Uh, Social Justice Warriors Always Lie and Conservative, How Conservatives Betrayed America. And uh, check out his um, websites, uh, Vox Populi and uh, Alpha Game. And, uh, of course, we'll link to your Castalia House Publishing, which is um, uh, really, really um, uh, fantastic in terms of the quality of books that, that you provide. And uh, just give us uh, some more info. We touched on it, the, the two, two new big tech platforms that you've got where people can go uh, to get information, how easy it is to sign up and uh, give us the elevator pitch if you can, my friend. Yeah, uh, if you're tired of getting censored on Twitter, come over to Gab. It's at gabai, gab.ai. I'm not actually involved with that, but uh, they're one of our alt tech allies. And uh, the new site that we unveiled two weeks ago is InfoGalactic. Um, if you, if you're tired of not being able to edit or having all your edits reverted on Wikipedia, uh, register with us. And, um, we've even got a browser extensions for, uh, Firefox and Safari and Chrome so that, uh, if, if Google tries to take, uh, if you click on a Google link to Wikipedia, it'll take you to InfoGalactic <laughs> instead. So, nice. uh, join, join the alt tech revolution. Absolutely. Yeah. You can free yourself long before you get freed by others. So thanks, uh, Vox, a great chat. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk again soon and, uh, enjoy your vacation. Uh, I look forward to getting you back into your giant vampiric cathedral chair anytime <laughs> soon. Thanks a lot. Take care. Always a pleasure. Thanks. <laughs>